Welcome into this week's Sports House podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Sam Hauser back with you for episode number 51 here in Austin, Minnesota, doing the podcast from the AM 1480 KAUS studios here in Austin. It's not that they let me. I, mean, I, I got to thank them. Not that they necessarily let me. Just nobody knows that I'm here. It's the beauty of having a key to this place and a quiet station on Sundays. Quiet station on the weekends as a whole. Nobody knows that I'm here and I get to use... Equipment that's way better than anything that I have at home for free. So thanks, KUS Radio, for supporting the podcast as we're sitting here for episode number 51 here this week. And it's a number that is good to the podcast because we're still going here at this point. It's also a number that's been very good to the Seattle Mariners over the last couple of decades because it started out with Randy Johnson, the big unit, the Hall of Famer. Randy Johnson started out wearing number 51 from 1989 to 1998, coming over from the Montreal Expos over to Seattle and getting his Hall of Fame career going there with the Mariners before going off to the Diamondbacks and I think a couple other places as well. But then when he left Seattle, Ichiro picked it up. Ichiro Suzuki picking up the baton and running with it. So not a bad stretch there of number 51s for the Seattle Mariners. Randy Johnson in Seattle f- until 1998. He left partway through the 98 season and went to Houston for part of a year the- before going off and resurrecting his career with the Diamondbacks. But he left Seattle in 98, and then each hero came around in 2001 and was there partly into the 2012 season. So you think about a stretch of over 20 years where the number 51 was just crushing it. In Seattle, between the two of them, one American League Cy Young for Randy Johnson in 1995, American League MVP and Rookie of the Year for Ichiro in 2001, really across the board for Ichiro, his first year in Major League Baseball, he was an All-Star, American League MVP, simultaneously American League Rookie of the Year, and won a Gold Glove and Silver Slugger, all for the Mariners in 2001, he was an All-Star in all 12 years In Seattle, and I'm sorry, 17 all-star appearances between the two of them. An American League Cy Young, an American League MVP, and Rookie of the Year. Plenty of gold gloves and silver sluggers for each year. He he was an all-star every year in Seattle and won the gold glove every year in Seattle. Also won three silver sluggers. So that number 51 has been nothing but good to the city of Seattle, Washington. And it as a whole. Gets the nod this week on the Sports House Podcast. Looking at the SoundCloud stats for this week, a little bit interesting, and we've had some interesting weeks. We've had stretches where Soviet Russia has been doing a lot of listening to the podcast. We've had countries all over the world listen to the podcast. We've had a lot of countries in Eastern and Western Europe, in South America, here around North America, but never in the history of the podcast that now stretches more than a year have we ever had anything like this where one country has taken up so much of the stats for the week one non-north american country has taken up most uh, has taken up this much of the attention for this week so i gotta give a shout out to the people of venezuela los Venezuelanos, listening to the podcast 
here the last couple weeks. The Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela taking over the top spot with with authority. To quote Marv Albert, who people in Venezuela probably have no idea who that is. Los Venezolanos. Muchas gracias. For the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, but also in South America. You got a couple from Argentina in there and Brazil as well. So thank you, everybody listening in Salta, Argentina and Annapolis, Brazil. That's disappointing. Nothing against the fine people of Annapolis, Brazil. I appreciate you listening to the podcast, but Annapolis is what Annapolis is in Maryland. I think it's either in Maryland or or Indiana. It's where um. It's where one of the military colleges is. It's in Maryland. That's where the, the Naval Academy is. It's where the uh, the Navy midshipmen are in Annapolis. So there you go. We have our own, we have a connection with with Brazil. Also, if one listener in Montreal, listening in Canada, up in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and then here in Albert Lee, Minnesota, as well, just down the road from us here in Austin. So thanks everybody for listening to the podcast here on iTunes and or SoundCloud, wherever you may be streaming. It's the beauty of the technology age that we're in. We sit in Argentina and listen to a podcast about something going on in the United States. Like, it's interesting. I, I, I can't say with any kind of certainty how much interest there is in American sports. American pop culture is a little bit different. That's something that there are, are shades and examples and influences of that all over the world, just like there are influences of other countries here in the United States. Sports is a little bit different. There are always going to be unique cases, but most of the world either doesn't get or doesn't find American football particularly interesting, just like is the case here with what is known everywhere else as football, talking about soccer. You get, I mean, there certainly are international NFL fans because the NFL is, is branching out to other pl- other parts of the world, most notably London, and we're getting these games in Mexico City now, and Roger Goodell wants to keep expanding. So there is some interest in American football outside of the United States, but American sports culture as a whole, that's one, that's one that I just I don't know how much interest there really is and how much people in Venezuela actually care about what we're talking about here on the podcast because for the the two most listened to episodes from the fine people down in Venezuela and South America as a whole the two most listened to episodes are one of them is from about a calendar year ago or a little bit less actually it's from about 11 months ago now it was from early October the eighth episode of the sports house podcast a lot of it was about the Vikings and the NFL as a whole and the Jaguars playing in London and the Ryder Cup and the Ryder Cup, we talked a little bit about the Twins in there as well. There was another one where a lot of it was about the governor of Texas's beef with Roger Goodell because of some comments back and forth when the bathroom bill was a hot topic. A little bit about some of the mega casts that ESPN was doing for the national championship. So it was interesting. We didn't. Really, there wasn't much international flavor to these shows, and I wonder how much people in Venezuela are actually interested in what's going on in American sports. But hey, I'll take it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell I'm not gonna tell anybody, I would never tell anybody, don't listen to the podcast. Like this is not for you. It's for everybody. If you're interested, then by all means we can uh, we can talk about it. More recently here on the podcast, one of the main focuses has been media trends, just general uh, as a way to sum it up media trends and 
even that gets itself in dangerous territory because when we use the word, or the, I guess it would be the phrase, the media, when we talk about the media, you know, it's like a couple weeks ago talking about what the political spectrum does to conversation in general and how, pol- how, and how when politics get in the way, it makes conversation difficult because you'll hear uh, a conservative outlet talk about the left or uh, a liberal outlet talk about the right. And it ends up being like, pass- like passive-aggressive parents when the other one comes home from work or from wherever and it's like, guess what your son did today? When, uh, when a parent decides that they, they want to go with the approach of disowning their child, dad's at home doing whatever, mom comes home from work, and it's, guess what your son did today? Whether it was, you know, he got a bad grade on a test at school, or he broke something in the house, whatever it was, guess what your son did today? And that's what politics have become. That's a lot of what the conversation has become in terms of looking at the opposite viewpoint. Silly as it may be, it's it's guess what the left did today, or guess what the left said today, guess what those crazy nut jobs said today. Oh, you're never gonna, or is it? It ends up being a tease. You'll never guess what the righties are talking about today. Now that we did wrong, coming up next. The sad reality is, it's at a point now where it's not specific enough because a lot of times, more often than not, when somebody brings up the media. It ends up being part of a divisive thought or with a divisive mindset or with a divisive tone and so on and so forth, whatever it may be. It just ends up being something divisive. It's part of a a larger thought that comes with some kind of negative connotation, like somebody not liking the way the media did something or somebody not liking the not not liking the media approach. Looking at something only in a negative light instead of looking at some, looking at more of the positive. Like Fox News was expressing their one of the one of the Fox News programs over the weekend was expressing their frustration in the media pointing out how Donald Trump handled his trip to Texas. You know, Fox News is saying, you know, the media only did this and the media should have done this and they didn't do this and that. And it ends up coming with all these with all these negative connotations. So even when I talk about media trends as the focus of the podcast, got to be careful with that. And we usually end up being as specific as possible for that reason. But one of the media trends that we've gotten over the last week or so is one that really needs to be put on a pedestal. It's one that really needs attention at a time like this now more than ever in this divisive time that we're in, in the relationship between the media and the public and politics and and so on and so forth. And that being local coverage, not even just coverage, local coverage, not even just news coverage of Hurricane Harvey in general, although there is a tie in with that but specifically local coverage from local outlets in different parts of Texas now because Houston is one of the biggest cities in the country and one of the and that part of Texas becoming one of the faster growing areas of the country Houston has taken over when it comes to most anything now about Hurricane Harvey for a while it was the smaller coastal cities in Texas along the Gulf because they were the ones that got hit first. And I don't know that anybody knew that Houston was going to get hit this bad. When Even when Hurricane Harvey first made landfall and even knowing that it was just creeping along and it was moving so slow, the, the focus 
initially was those coastal cities in Texas, those smaller coastal cities that were just going to get pounded. And unfortunately, they did because of everything that went into Harvey being what it was. But there wasn't this idea that Houston was going. Nobody imagined Houston getting hit as bad as it did. Nobody nobody imagined that this was going to be. Nobody saw this coming to Houston from 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 all the coverage that I that I had seen around the time that Harvey made landfall. And even in the in the days before, I don't think anybody anticipated this with Houston. And so because of that and because of Houston just being one of the bigger cities in Texas and one of the bigger cities in the country, most of the talk around Hurricane Harvey has gone to Houston. It, it, it's a case of just, it is what it is at this point. At a, at a time when you stack up Houston compared to some of the other smaller cities now, they'll, I'm sure locally they're getting just as much attention as Houston is in those parts of Texas, but on a national scale... You're not going to shove Houston to the side to talk about even a city like Corpus Christi or Galveston or Rockford or any of those other smaller towns in eastern Texas. You're just not going to do it on the national level when Houston is in the state that it's in. So Houston has just become synonymous with Harvey now. And even in a city as big as Houston, the local media in Houston needs attention this week in particular because of what they've had to deal with with Hurricane Harvey where they're trying to deal with the flooding just like everybody else and they're trying to take care of their own families but they're also trying to live out their obligation of keeping the public in the know and keeping the public informed while they're dealing with the realization that you know right now I am a part of the public I'm dealing with this just like you are but I still but I'm I'm still going to do what I can to make sure that you know what's going on. And so I found this interview this morning. Vernon Loeb is his name. He's the managing editor of the Houston Chronicle, which is one of the biggest newspapers in the country in a city that is one of the biggest as well. And the interview was with Howard Kurtz on on Fox News. And this is not a time to say, oh, Fox News, and just immediately go roll your eyes and go off down that road. It's not the time to do that. The point is, it's a national platform, but now we're at the point of just trying to humanize the story and bringing in the guy that's trying to manage all of this. So, so now, you, now you take it a step further when you talk to the managing editor of the Houston Chronicle, because he, just like his writers and reporters, just like the rest of the city of Houston, is trying to deal with the flooding and trying to make sure that he's safe and his family is safe. But he also ends up in the position of, okay, guys, I get it, but we still have an obligation. And he's trying to get his team of writers together to do what they can. So, I mean, that's that's a fascinating position for somebody to be in right now because he's trying to do – because he he, as a managing editor, he's a delegator. On a normal day when there isn't a hurricane going on and there isn't flooding going on, he's just he's a delegator. He's making sure that everybody has their assignments, everybody understands their assignments and bringing it all together for the newspaper. But now when you bring the humanizing element of a natural disaster into the equation, that balancing act for a newspaper managing editor is fascinating. 
it's not something that I can relate to at all or even imagine what he's going through or, or what any of the writers are going through. I talked about this last week. Even as somebody that grew up in in Florida, which is usually right in that cone for most hurricanes, most of them come through the Caribbean and then make their way around the east coast of the United States. I mean, I, I've dealt with my share of hurricanes. I've I've seen a lot of them. I've seen some, I've seen some bad ones. I've I've seen ones that we that is that have dodged us. I've seen ones that were projected to be a lot worse and then weren't as bad. I've seen ones that weren't supposed to be that bad, but dump, but did what Harvey did and just dumped a lot of rain. So I've seen a lot of hurricanes, but never anything like this, and especially not as a working professional. So that's why all this is so interesting, just because I've seen a lot of hurricanes, but this is still hard to contextualize. And then trying to, for for anybody, trying to put yourself in those shoes of a guy like Vernon Lova, a managing editor for, for a newspaper. I mean, you have a lot of people that are relying on you with the Houston Chronicle being the biggest, one of the biggest newspapers in the state of Texas, you have a lot of people relying on you, and you have a job to do of making sure that your writers and reporters are doing their job, but while also trying to be sympathetic to people trying to keep themselves and, them, and their families safe. So I wanted to play a, cl- a couple of clips from his interview just to to hear it from the horse's mouth. I think this was the first time in my career where I put the entire paper on one story because, you know, nothing else mattered at that point. Um, I, you know, we had uh, numerous staff members uh, lose their houses. A couple of lost their, lost everything. Other people, almost everybody, um, uh, had some sort of flood damage. I put a big narrative in play, in play on Monday, the second day of the storm, and we published today a 6,500 word narrative and two of the writers uh, were sort of telling me, yeah, I'd love to do this, but I'm watching the water creep up to my front door, and uh, let me get back to you. Yeah. And luckily they were okay. One of them ha- actually had evacuated his house. He lived in this place called Siena Plantation, which got hit by tornadoes on day one. So he had evacuated and was sort of able to work. So I had this team of writers, uh, sort of evacuees, uh, you know, themselves w- working on this narrative. It doesn't get more humanizing than that. I have this narrative I want to work on. Hey, guys, what do you think? Yeah, I'd love to help. But I, as we're having this conversation right now, I'm watching the the water come up to my doorstep. I, I just I don't I don't know. I don't know if I can help because I'm watching this 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 floodwater start coming up. It doesn't get more humanizing than that for local journalism, for journalism in general, but especially in a case like this for a natural disaster that's happening in a specific area, it doesn't get any more humanizing for local journalism. But as he talked about, he did get some writers to help out, and I want to play this clip, uh, this, this last clip from the managing editor of the Houston Chronicle. And then there's a larger point at play here as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. It was so inspiring to me to see everybody step up and not only, you know, be available, but to say, you know, I want to do more. Where can I go? Um, We've had a bunch of people who just won't stop working. You know, it's, you know, you do reach sort of physical and and perhaps even more important sort of emotional exhaustion at the end of the week so we're starting to tell people you know go home take a day off and some of them i just can't get to stop and that's where local journalism needs to get put on a pedestal this week that's where journalism in general needs to get put on a pedestal but again everything gets localized when you're talking about a natural disaster like the case of hurricane harvey but that right there 
that clip right there is what people need to understand. That's the biggest one of all of them in that interview with, again, it was the manager, uh, the managing editor of the Houston Chronicle. That's the one that I want everybody to hear because the people that have been saying, oh, yeah, you know, that I've, I've heard it here on the radio. I've heard it from people here at the station. I've seen a ton of it on social media. When the Weather Channel was out doing their their live coverage overnight, all throughout the night last Friday when Hurricane Harvey made landfall, and you have people that are sitting there saying, why are they doing that? Are they insane? Why the hell would the Weather Channel put them out there like that? Because it's not traditional journalism, but that is local journalism at its finest, and even more so because you have people that couldn't care less about the about Texas. You have people that have no connection to Texas or to Florida when they were in Florida for Hurricane Matthew last uh, uh, last fall. You have people that that have no connections to these places, but they're going there because it is who they are as a professional to keep the public informed when there is a natural disaster and even in the aftermath of of a natural disaster. Now that's more where the local journalism comes into play for, for people in in Houston and and in, in Texas as a whole. But when I've heard these people ask, why are they doing that? The response is, are you kidding me? It should be obvious and it should be, we shouldn't be questioning why those people are doing what they're doing the only question we should be asking is do you need anything because that is local journalism at its finest whether it's somebody from the houston chronicle going out and and getting interviews with people that are stuck on their roofs or or getting rescued by boat or whether it's people from the weather channel going to being stationed in certain cities in Texas, doing live reports to let people that still have power and still have access to television know exactly what is going on. Because you can only do so much from... Offhand, I don't know where the National or where the the Weather Channel's headquarters are, but even going off of of reports from the National Weather Service stations in, in different parts of that of that state of, of Texas. There's only so much you can do because it's like the, the sports comparison would be like looking at a box score. And one of the, one of the, you know, one of the big, you, know, you hear people say all the time, you can only get so much information about a game from the box score. And it doesn't always tell all the story. It, if anything else, it never tells the full story because you can have a case, you know, a, a basketball game where, where a guy st- scores 30 points and it's a quiet 30 points where it doesn't have that much of an impact on a game. Or you could have a quarterback who's rating for a game stunk, but he made a couple big throws that made all the defense all the difference in his defense to the rest. And you would just look at the numbers and think, man, he had a crappy game, but he had an impactful game. And when you have National Weather Service reports, those are absolutely helpful because they're still localized to an extent. You know, a National Weather Service report can tell you at this time. The, the storm is expected to be in this area, and at this time it's expected to be in this area, and winds are roughly about this. But you can get all as specific as humanly possible when there is a human standing there as the hurricane is coming. Now, the one thing that the one thing that the fact that people don't know this was a little bit this is a, a little bit frustrating. It's one of those things that just makes you makes you rub your temples. They're not standing there while. 
the strongest parts of Hurricane Harvey are right over them. They're, they're not standing on the ground in Corpus Christi or in, in Rockford as Hurricane Harvey is coming right over them because they would they would blow away. They wouldn't actually be standing there. It wouldn't be humanly possible for them to be standing there. A lot of the times, it's at the very early stages. You know, the, the, once it get, I think once the winds get above sixty miles an hour, or so fifty to sixty miles an hour, they get out of there for their own safety. They they're there while it's safe for them, and they have time to say, "Hey, this is exactly what's coming." And they can do reports on things that the National Weather Service can. You know, they can say, you know, that they can take the cameraman and point it and, and say, look, here is where the water is. It's coming up to like it's coming up to my knees. This would be a good time to get the hell out of here. Or you know, and, and just just to have that just to have those visualizations and they can take the information that's coming off of radars and from the Weather Channel and from the National Weather Service and localize it and explain exactly this is exactly what this means for this community. And the fact that people don't understand that is like, come on now. Those are the people that don't support local journalism. And this is exactly the and, and, and I hate to I hate to turn this into a PSA, but this is a perfect example of why we need to support local journalism, because I guarantee if this was happening in your community, you would want somebody there to tell you what is going on exactly when it's going on what that means and what to do after and and what the situation looks like afterwards because I mean, think about it the aftermath is the aftermath is the biggest part when there's a hurricane going on most of us understand what that means we shouldn't be right in its path we understand that there's a possibility for tornadoes which there were, which there were plenty of in Texas as well, there's a possibility for tornadoes. We know there's going to be a lot of wind and rain, and it's going to do it's going to do damage. But during the hurricane, most everybody is hunkered down, or they're or they've already evacuated. They're somewhere. the The more significant impact of local journalism comes in the aftermath, so you can see for yourself, and you so you can get accurate descriptions of you know maybe in you know, maybe any even actually specifically for a city as big as Houston. You know, maybe certain parts of Houston are are still really flooded. And it's, you know, hey, you really shouldn't go over here. But if you're over here, you're probably in better shape. And then you can get a confirmation. Yeah, you know, we're over here and we're in better shape than those are on the, on the other part of the city. To have somebody telling you what's exactly going on in your community so you know if it's safe to come back. If you know the if, if it's, you know, if somebody's saying, hey, in this specific part of Houston, it's getting worse. These people need to evacuate. You know if you need to do that. All right. So now we're here a couple days after and this part of Houston, you know, the, the water's seceding. It's, it's, it's getting a little bit better. You know, you can come back. But when you do come back, these specific parts, you still need to stay away from. Okay, awesome. National Weather Service reports can't do that. They're helpful during a storm, but after a storm, you need local journalism. And what the people in Houston, those that work for the Houston Chronicle, and every other outlet in the area that's not getting as much national attention as the Houston Chronicle, those people deserve our attention and our respect for what they're doing. Because they're in the same boat as us. You heard from the from the uh, managing editor. You have some of these people that work for the Chronicle. Their house got destroyed. They have nowhere to go. But some of them were fortunate enough to be able to have somewhere to go. And they can still work. And even though they either don't know what the status of their house is. Or they might already know. Yeah, your, your, your house is gone. 
they're still finding it in themselves to let everybody else know the information that they can to make to give people as best as as good a chance as possible to stay safe. And that's a really special thing that we tend to take for granted. Support local media. That's the end of that. Buy your newspaper. Or at least buy an online subscription to something. Just contribute to local media. Keep it alive. That's all I'm going to say about that. The other story that I wanted to get to this week is an interesting one that goes back to a few weeks ago when we had Heather Rule on the podcast. She's a, a local freelance journalist here in Minnesota. As we're all in a state right now trying to figure out where we're going on a number of different platforms in the media, understanding that everybody today has to be able to be multifaceted, has to at least have the the ability to be a multimedia journalist. But it's particularly tough for for writers because print journalism is in a, I don't want to say unstable, but it's in a uncomfortable, volatile place right now. It still is. It, it has been for a long time, but even more so now as companies are trying to figure out how to keep writing profitable. Because going back to the early days of businesses and corporations taking over media outlets, it's become a business like anything else, which the root of it, the root of it is making money. And sometimes writers getting off come, uh, and sometimes writers getting laid off comes from bad business practice or at least short-sighted business practices, like ESPN spending all these billions of dollars for live sports and then just not having what they feel is enough funds to to pay all their writers on staff. Or you get cases where Fox Sports and Vice Sports feel it's more profitable to do everything digital and not have written stories because we're accepting the fact that people aren't just going to sit there and read stories anymore, especially long form pieces. So it actually keeps up with, with the theme of what we were just talking about with all the stuff with Hurricane Harvey. Journalism is in a volatile place. It's in an uncomfortable place in our society. And I saw the story from Awful Announcing. It was posted on Friday, and it goes back to a Deadspin piece from last month where we have a lawsuit on our hands right now going on between Vox Media, the the company that owns SB Nation, and it's a class action lawsuit with all current and former site managers, managing editors, or similar employees who performed work for Vox Media in the last three years. It's a class action lawsuit with Vox Media and former managing editors and writers for SB Nation. With the idea being that those who are a part of the class action lawsuit feel like their job duties meet that of employees rather than contractors and they want to be paid like employees under labor law, under under United States labor laws. But the way that SB Nation was originally set up in the early 2000s was just a place for fans to to write you know for fans to write about specific teams and until this point I I, I I don't want to sit here and say that until this point nobody's thought you know why are we doing this but it's gotten to the point now where Vox Media is making so much money that the people that are writing for SB Nation want a part of it because most people most of the people that just contribute to SB Nation, either get paid nothing or peanuts. And even the even the ones that 
are managing editors and site managers for the certain team websites from from what's being from from the story from what's being put out there they they still don't get much they they get at most somewhere around 600 a month which isn't enough to cover much of any living expenses just about anywhere in any big city where there's professional sports to write about and as we've seen some of these lawsuits come up like the one between Hulk Hogan and Gawker and part and what part of what made that as big a story as it was was the precedent that it set with what constitutes as real news and how much protection that Gawker was supposed to have gotten by way of of being a news outlet and this is something that SB Nation was never going to to do anything about because of what was established at the very beginning from the from the get-go started out as something small where fans were given an opportunity to write about their teams and try to get into journalism in in what was in what was and really even now in 2017 for the purposes of SB Nation still is a, a pretty casual platform of doing so and in terms of serious journalism, SB Nation isn't taken very seriously, but it was never meant to. That's the whole point of this was it was never meant to be something that was taken seriously. And I don't, and it was never meant to to really be what it is now. But in our capitalist society that we're in, nothing gets done for free. Websites don't get run for free. They don't get managed for free. And people people generally don't want to do work for free and that includes even something as fun as writing about sports people don't want to do it for free so where this goes as a lawsuit how this ends either way is going to set a massive precedent because if Vox Media wins this site or Vox Media wins this case then it has the potential to to crush freelance journalism which People that do freelance work now, a lot of them see that as their their biggest opportunity or their most viable opportunity to stay within the media ranks, to, to stay within the industry. Because there are only so many jobs in the mainstream media, but that's the beauty of the Internet is there's there, there's a lot less finite amount of opportunities. There's a lot more opportunities to write on the Internet than there is in traditional in, in the traditional media landscape so that's that's why that's why freelance journalism has gotten as big as it has in 2017 like heather talked about a few weeks ago but if vox media wins this case it could potentially be crippling for for freelance journalism because it sets a precedent that other parent companies that house freelance journalists have the potential to do the same thing in how they pay their writers. And for those that just have blogs, chances are those aren't profitable enough to do anything with in the first place. But on the flip side of that, it's still just as significant if those in the class action lawsuit win the case, because not only would it force the parent companies to pay their writers appropriately, but it would likely end in significant layoffs because these companies aren't going to pay all these uh, all these site managers and editors and writers. They're not going to pay all of them, and 
a good chunk of them are going to end up getting laid off and the site may, the, the people at the top they'll probably keep around and then just force those people to do more work and then even going beyond that it creates a precedent for other industries that house independent contractors like an uber or a lyft or you know, any of those driving places like that you know uber's always uber's always doing those commercials about about it being a side hustle and you know any, any just any any company that has independent contractors is going has the potential to fall into this precedent so this is a extremely significant case that was put into motion here this week that's going to be really interesting to follow as as this develops and as more comes out of this because there's potentially damaging and potentially serious outcomes that could come from either side even if they settle it's still a victory it's still somewhat of a win for the journalists because if nothing else it gave them a voice and it created attention for that level of exploitation against against freelance journalists against independent contractors so this is going to be interesting no matter what happens with this case going forward but let's get right to the tweet of the week because I have an announcement to make here at the end of the podcast. So we'll get to that here in just a couple minutes. But let's get to the tweet of the week and tis the season as we get to the tweet of the week. So it's just ending the ending the podcast on a light note, looking back at something interesting or something funny from social media here this week. And tis the season as college football started yesterday, which which meant we were the big time college football started on Saturday, which means we get the return of college game day, which means we get the return of the college game day signs. And there's nothing else like it in sports. And so college game day always finds the best ones and puts them on their social media sites. So go through some of the best ones from yesterday. And the first one starting out with the Gators, uh, the Florida Gators, Michigan Wolverines game from yesterday is a, a Gator fan has a sign with Jim Harbaugh's face and simply says Harbaugh saves less than 50 than 15 percent on his car insurance. Geico reference there. Solid. There's a Hey Darnold sign that somebody made. So, it's, of course, it's a, a reference to USC quarterback Sam Darnold and the old uh, Nickelodeon show from the late 90s, early 2000s, Hey Arnold. And so college football game and so college game day right there with the caption, move it football head, which, of course, is a reference to Hey Arnold. And you get some of the simple ones as well. Like somebody wrote, Lane Kiffin cheats at Monopoly. Solid. Another one, the tide will dot, 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 probably win like you love the confidence on that one there's just another one somebody wrote nick saban hates science could very well be true of course you had your classic atlanta blew a 25 point lead super bowl reference there were game of thrones references and taylor swift references and just pop culture references that are over my head that i don't keep up with but solid start to the season for the college game day signs here this week as they were in New Orleans for the Alabama. I think they were I'm pretty sure they were in New Orleans here this week because uh, they were outside of the Superdome. Yeah, for the uh, for the Alabama Florida State game. But a solid start to the season here for college football. But that'll do it for the week here on the Sports House podcast. My name is Sam Hauser. Thanks so much for hanging out as always. And for the last 51 weeks that we've been doing the podcast here and Going forward, the the Sports House podcast is going to take a sabbatical 
here for at least a couple weeks. Now that football season has started here in Austin and as a whole for college and the NFL as well, things get a little bit busier here in the fall than they would normally at any other point in the year because uh, we get the fall here and then, of course, going into the winter where things really get busy uh, for us here at the high school level in Minnesota. So at least for a couple weeks, the, the Sports House podcast is going to take what, what I'm calling an indefinite sabbatical. Not saying that this is it, not saying that this is the last one, because there will be a proper send-off. When the time comes that the Sports House podcast does, if, if it ever does, officially just, just call to a close, we, we close the book on it, there will be a proper send-off. But for now, an indefinite sabbatical is in the future here for the podcast. Just just to take a step back for a couple weeks and think about the future of it, so... This will be it for a little while, but this is not goodbye. But my name is Sam Hauser. Thanks so much for hanging out. As always, always appreciate everybody listening here to the podcast because it's the reason that I keep doing it here week after week. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at 1480 underscore Sam, 1480 underscore Sam on Twitter and here in Austin, Minnesota during the week on AM 1480 KAUS and MyAustinMinnesota.com. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah.